Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Remember, data is the commodity. You're just the product. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Ben West. Ben is from Stratfor, which is a rain company. And on this podcast, we discuss money laundering and its links to organized crime. And we also take a look at a recent FBI sting operation called Trojan Shield. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can support it in a few ways. First of all, please leave a review on your preferred podcast app. All reviews help us gain more listeners as it raises the awareness of the podcast. I don't know if you know, but all podcast apps are algorithm-based, and the more interaction the show gets, the more listeners it attracts. And just a quick shout out to everybody who's left a review so far. There's been some absolutely wonderful and very kind and in-depth reviews left on iTunes and other podcast apps over the last few months. I've really been blown away by some of them. Some of them have been really super. And thank you so much for taking the time to write those reviews. You can also become a friend of the podcast through Patreon. For £3 a month, you can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show. You'll get a free copy of my film, The Dry Cleaner. And on top of that, I will throw in some extras from time to time. One of them in particular will be a behind-the-scenes look at the podcast, and I'm hoping to organise some Zoom drinks soon. If you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy my short film, The Dry Cleaner. The Dry Cleaner is my first attempt at original spy fiction, and is now available on Amazon Prime and iTunes. Without further ado, let's get going, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Ben, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back on. Just for the benefit of listeners who may not have listened to our previous episode, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional experience? Yeah. So uh, my name is Ben West. I'm a senior global security analyst for Stratfor, a rain company. Um, I've been with them off and on since 2007. Uh, in between, in between working at Stratfor, um, I, I've gotten my my graduate degree at Johns Hopkins at the School for Advanced International Studies, and I've I've lived um, all around the world from. Central America to Europe and, and currently based in Southeast yeah, Asia. Excellent. So today we're going to talk about organized criminal groups and how they exploit financial services and new technology to launder their money. So Ben, maybe this is a silly question, but I like to start with silly questions. Why do criminal organizations have to launder their money? So no, I think that's a, that's a great place to start. So I think it's, it's helpful to, to think about criminal organizations, especially large ones, this, the same way we think about um, legitimate businesses. Mm. So you think about legitimate businesses are bringing in revenue from from multiple sources, uh, probably storing it in multiple bank accounts, and they have to distribute it out to their employees, pay the bills, um, take care of all their expenses. They can obviously do that through legitimate banking. There are lots of mm. lots of services that can that can help them manage that. Criminal organizations obviously have, I think, the same requirements. They are also taking in. Uh, revenue from different sources. They have to to pay their pay their employees, pay their bills, uh, but they they can't rely on uh, the kind of the formal economy, the formal uh, services out there that that legitimate business can, businesses can, or at least 
if they do, they, they, they do so at a risk of, of being caught uh, or being flagged by those companies. So um, criminals basically have to, to operate parallel financial operations mm-hmm. um, as, as a way to kind of manage all their money. Uh, cash is obviously, uh, that's, that's one of the major forms that the revenue comes in. And I think, you know, if you're just if you're just taking in all this cash, if you have literally rooms full of cash, uh, that is not only just unwieldy and inefficient way to to store and move your money around. It's also extremely risky. Uh, You know, you could you could be robbed by other criminals. Um, You could lose it. You could have internal theft. I mean, all these all these same risks um, that legitimate companies have. And also, I mean, these criminal organizations are international uh you know, payments are often going from one part of the world to the, to another. Uh, it's it's really difficult to move bulk cash internationally for this for the same reasons I said. So you want to do that either electronically or, or through these kind of parallel um, alternate financial vehicles. Yeah. I think the ultimate reason why they need to launder the money is that eventually criminal organizations and criminal actors need to use the money, whether that's to uh, you know, buy vehicles, buy property, other luxury uh, items, invest in, if, if you ever want to invest in the legitimate market, you, you, uh, that money is going to be coming from, um, an unsavory source. And I think when people start making large purchases, you start, uh, raising suspicion, you start attracting scrutiny. And if you don't have basically a good cover story for that money, uh, you're at risk at getting investigated and, and potentially arrested. Yeah, yeah. and organised criminal gangs. I mean, if I remember um, watching Narcos correctly, Pablo Escobar had to bury his money because he had so much money and people still find it now. So, yeah, I, I think uh, it's a, it's not the first problem that comes to mind, but yeah, what to do with all the cash. If you, if you are a successful criminal, what do you do with all the cash? And... Um, and I, and I think it's it's an often pre- a common predicament that you know just because you're good at um, producing drugs or selling drugs or, or, or um, smuggling drugs mm-hmm. into from from the source where they're produced to the market, that's a totally different skill set from uh, from laundering money and uh, totally different channels, uh, just a different set of expertises. And so we'll we'll talk about some examples later, but it's it's common that you see. Um, especially in larger criminal organizations, there'll be kind of a separate team that handles money laundering um, from from the rest. And I think that's partly partly just for operational security, you know, keeping operations divided, but also just because, yeah, it does require a, a different skill set. You identify three stages of money laundering. Can you talk to us about those three stages? The the common model for money laundering is is placement layering and integration. Yeah. So placement is basically that's that's where you you know you have your your big piles of cash and you are putting it in uh, some sort of financial vehicle whether that's putting it into a bank account or sometimes it might just be buying uh, buying hard assets uh, but but it's basically it's it's taking that cash moving it from cash to to some other vehicle that is likely more transferable, uh, easier to manage. The second process is layering, and that's where you're you're basically criminals are trying to obfuscate the origin of the money. So uh, that's where you'll see you know maybe um, 
you know, maybe the money is put into a bank account and then transferred to other bank accounts, transferred to other countries, um, maybe maybe uh, exchange for different foreign currencies. Basically, all these extra steps that make it that much harder for investigators to track and, and kind of figure out what was the provenance of the of the of the illicit funds. Um, and this this is there there are a, a lot of different ways to do that. And then finally is integration, and that's where you know once once you feel like the the source of your revenue the the illicit revenue has been um, sufficiently uh, obfuscated, criminals will then take it out and then basically use it to to buy whatever it is they need to buy, um, and and basically treat that money as. Um, as, as legitimate as legitimate funds, and, and that's a lot of times you see uh, property investments a big one um, because you know it's it, you know if you have a lot of money you, know, you can buy whole buildings, whole tracts of lands. Uh, it's a good way to launder money or luxury items such as cars, um, you know luxury brands, luxury clothes, things like that, jewelry. Uh, those are those are common mm. integration mm. and art. Art as well is a big one, isn't it? Art art's a big one. Because you can kind of hit all three in one. Uh, yeah, you, you don't necessarily have a lot of... Well, first of all, it's, it's a very subjective uh, subjective mm. call when it comes to the value of mm. a painting. And you know, you, you might decide for expediency that this particular piece of art is worth $60 million. Um, that's a good way to... you know, Yeah, you can, you can give someone the $60 million. It, it can be very private, not publicly disclosed. And, you know, it, it's... Because it's a subjective mm. call on on the value of art, it's a little bit easier to defend that um, it was a legitimate purchase. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Thank you for that. So, can you talk to us then about the sort of tactics used by organized criminal groups to launder their money? Yeah. So, um, I'll run through. I, I've, I've listed mm. five. Uh, there are there, there are dozens, but these are the five I think that are probably most common. What you'll see. Um, the first one is is illicit currency exchanges, and this is a really a really common way, especially if, if people are moving money across borders. Um, basically, you know, you know, when you go to the airport and when you cross the border, there's, there's usually a little um, a little stand where you can you can change your money out. You can change your your U.S. dollars or Great British pounds for a local currency. The idea is those those are very you know tightly regulated, um, basically treated as financial institutions. They they have limits on how much cash they can they can transact at any given time. An illicit currency exchange is is that just without the regulations and you know set up to handle tens, hundreds, of thousands, if not millions of dollars at a time. Um, when I when I think of illicit currency exchanges, I remember several years ago crossing the border from Mexico to Guatemala, and there were guys literally standing around with bags full of. Quetzal, the Guatemalan currency, ready to buy Mexican pesos, and you know, totally unregulated. I, I'm I'm sure police probably knew they were there. They were probably getting a bribe or a, a kickback to, so they could operate. But you know, imagine these guys sitting at the border. Um, that that transaction is is, is unreported. Uh, and if you are taking illicit funds from Mexico and going into Guatemala and exchanging into Quetzal. That is, um, you know, you can use that either going back to the money laundering process as the placement, as you know, say you have these illicit, um, these illicit pesos, you can then introduce it into the 
financial system by by purchasing Quetzal um, or any other foreign currency, it also can act as a layering. You know, this is if you if you do this enough times, if you change the currency um, enough times, it just becomes unwieldy to track because you're going across multiple uh, multiple countries, multiple jurisdictions. It, it's it's um, you can you can lose the, you can lose the trace really quickly um, when when you use these these currency exchanges. Um, and when we get into some of the examples later on, currency exchanges definitely play a um, a big role there. I would say the second probably most common one. This might actually be the most common. Um, it's just the not always reported. Uh, is structuring or kind of slang for just smurfing, yeah. <laughs> and this is yeah, yeah it's a funny name, but uh, the, the idea comes for anyone who watched the Smurfs, you know, basically taking one and, and dividing it into many smaller ones, um, and that's the idea here that uh, a lot of countries have a limit of, you know, the United States is ten thousand U.S. dollars, um, other countries have similar limits on how much money you can um, put into a bank account or exchange. Uh, and if you go over that limit, you trigger what's called a suspicious action report where ba- basically banks have to, or financial institutions have to, to flag it and report it. And so in order to avoid being reported, uh, criminal organizations will just basically, maybe they'll take like a $1 million uh, chunk of, 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 of revenue and then break that up into, um, do the math. What is that? A hundred, maybe a hundred different a hundred different yeah. deposits of ten thousand dollars each, um, and maybe across different financial institutions as a way to um, basically break up that lump sum and make it look like many smaller sums. And and that's a way to um, another way. It's it's I would say probably most often used in the placement phase, um, and it also kind of doubles as as a layering tactic as well. Front companies and fraudulent invoices. That's a, that's a common one where, you know, you'll, a, a drug trafficking organization will set up a, a storefront maybe that sells washing machines, but, you know, and they'll write invoices saying, okay, John Smith bought a washing machine today. It's actually, it's drug revenue coming in, but they're basically covering it up as um, washing machines or, or, you know, whatever, pick your, um, pick your durable good. I've heard I've heard restaurants and dry cleaners tend to be quite popular. This kind of thing. So yeah, so bars, restaurants, um, laundromats, mm-hmm. especially laundromats, because they they it anything that's really cash intensive, it's just it's a little easier um, because when people when when people come to investigate when they come to audit, it's it's more plausible to say well you know we don't have credit card receipts because it's all done in cash, um, so it's harder to check the you know to double check the um the story so you're right yeah laundromat's quite funny years ago i had to organize some filming in a laundromat and um and we we looked at like 20 of them and it was a real mission just to get permission to film in one of them and most of them were all owned by one person <laughs> on a mobile phone you know uh, with a heavy east end cockney accent you can imagine it <laughs> yeah that that must <laughs> That must have been as much of an adventure filming in a laundromat, um, <laughs> and and yeah, just lots of probably loose change and bills laying over the place, and um, not yeah, not the most um, professionally run mm. organizations mm. probably. Mm. 
<laughs> so uh, another tactic, I think, similar to the front companies are, um, you know, setting up shell companies and offshore accounts. This is where you, you know, you see uh, accounts popping up in the Bahamas mm-hmm. or um, I think like Isle of Man is, is a common one in, in the UK. Isn't that right? Yes. Yes. The Isle of Man. And I think Guernsey as well is another one, but definitely the Isle of Man. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, anything that kind of is under a, a different you know, has a different set of, of laws when it comes to, you know, privacy and banking. Um, those jurisdictions will take advantage of that by basically allowing people to store their mm-hmm. money there. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's hard to track. Um, finally, I think the, the most interesting one is trade-based money laundering. And, and there's definitely some good examples to talk about with this one. Um, but that's where um, the basic idea is, Let's say you're a drug organization in the United States and your, you know, your, your business partners in Colombia are shipping you cocaine, mm-hmm. you're selling it in the United States, they need a way to get that cash back to Colombia to basically pay the providers. Um, instead of, you know, there are all sorts of challenges with sending that cash back. One way they've done it in the past is to uh, take the cash, the revenue from the drug sales, purchase um Durable goods, so maybe cars, refrigerators, washing machines, um, you, you know, you name it, and then uh, ship that back to Colombia, sell it on the local market, and then the you know the the criminal organizers basically collect the revenue. So um, it's a way to basically traffic, or, or it's a way to send illicit funds back via perfectly legal. Um, unsuspecting cargo, uh, you know, electronics and, and things like that. And there are actually a few examples of criminal organizations making money off yeah. of that. So I think one, one important point in, in all of these tactics is that most of these are money losing operations. Um, if you're talking about illicit currency exchanges, usually those exchanges will take some money off the top, especially if you're dealing in large amounts of money. Uh, if you're, if you're smurfing, you're going to have to pay runners to go out and actually deposit all this money. Uh, front companies and, and sale companies require all these legal fees. Trade-based money laundering, um, yeah, you're basically investing that money in, in this, this you know, some, you know, on the face of it, at least ostensibly legitimate trade. And, um, and yeah, there, there are examples of, of criminal organizations making money off of, off of the actual money laundering process. So that's why this one is so interesting. It's also, I think where um, legitimate companies and businesses are, are most likely to get caught up into this. Because if you're selling uh, refrigerators or cars or washing machines to these criminal organizations, or if, they, if these criminal organizations are using your shipping company or freight forwarder to, to, to do this, you are basically implicated in these yeah, crimes. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's, there's liability there. So... Um, it's it's where the the you know there's this there's overlap between the criminal and legitimate business world, and and that's where it's you know the trade based money laundering is where it's most likely to happen. Yeah, yeah. Can you give us some examples of case studies you've looked at where these kind of things have been going on? Yeah. So, um, so for a caveat, uh, most of these examples that I've been looking at are, are coming out of the United States. So that's apologies to those, those international <laughs> listeners out there, but. There, that's just that's where my, my focus is. Um, and, and actually looking, I think as I was 
doing preparing for this and and, and I wrote this this uh, series of, of analyses on on money laundering one thing that actually it surprised me and then once you take a step back and think about it it's not that surprising some of the biggest anti-money laundering cases in the United States in the past two or three years have involved um, West African internet scams targeting victims in the United States so I think everyone's familiar with this concept these emails that come in, you know, whether it's, you know, a Nigerian prince or mm. um, asking for some sort of, you know, loan or, or try, you know, saying, I'm going to pay you and then I'm, you'll pay me, I'll pay mm. you back. And all these scams that are online, a lot of these come out of West Africa, specifically Nigeria. And so if you think about it, these, um, you know, the money is a lot of times they're, they're posing as someone who is in the United States. So, the victim who's in the United States, uh, but could also be anywhere, Canada, UK, Europe, Australia, they, they target everyone. Um, they, you know, the victim forwards the, the money to the designated bank account. Um, it's gone because it's a scam. They don't, they don't get their service. They don't get it back. Uh, but then, um, the crime has been committed. So that, that money is, that's illicit money. Um, then the, those Nigerian or West African criminal groups have basically cells based in the United States, individuals in the United States who are basically their job is just to open dozens of bank accounts in the United States where they can collect the money. And then it's their job to figure out how to get that money back to West Africa. And that's where we see all these tactics come into play um, where you have people, uh, Either, either the illicit money exchange where they're, they're, um, exchanging the U.S. dollars into Nigerian Naira, uh, in the process of, of getting it back to Nigeria. You've got trade based money laundering where people are, um, they're, they're buying a lot of times it was cars. They would buy cars and then ship the cars to Nigeria mm-hmm. where they were sold and then the money would then go up to the, to the organizers. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, you know, cases in, in August 2019, March 2020, February 2021, we're talking about upwards of $55 million in illicit funds. Um, and these operations go on for years. I mean, the the one that was, was most recently broken up in February 2021, that was $55 million stolen over the course of seven oh, wow. years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, they were able to operate for a long time and um, obviously make a lot of money off of it. I, th- I think it's interesting to note that in these cases where you had um, West African internet scams or West African based internet scams targeting U.S. citizens, you know, these, when you had these, op- these, these, these uh, law enforcement investigations, they usually would arrest dozens of individuals, up to 80 people um, who were involved in the money laundering side of things. And yet it's important to remember that the, the actual, the people who are actually committing the crime, who are organizing the scams are still at large in Nigeria or Ghana or, you know, wherever they are in West Africa. So these scams will continue. They, you know, it'll, it'll be a, obviously a disruption to their, to their operations, but they'll find new people in the U.S. who can, who can, who can continue the money laundering side of things. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're basically replaceable. They're, they're kind of like money mules. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it causes disruptions, but it doesn't, um, certainly doesn't, doesn't stop 
stop the business. One more point I'll make is that getting back to the, the trade-based money laundering tactic. So I think probably one of the more sophisticated money laundering operations we've seen in recent years uh, came out in September of 2020, uh, where they arrested five people, all of Chinese descent, who were using trade-based money laundering to launder tens of millions of dollars in illicit drug revenue from the United States to Mexico. So it fairly basic standard trade-based money laundering operation, except the wrinkle was they were moving it through China. So they would buy durable goods in the United States, move it to China, sell it there, take the money, buy more durable goods, and then move it to Mexico. And so there were, it was basically an extra step. And that's, you know, it basically makes it harder to infer, to investigate because you have one more step in the process. You have one more jurisdiction. Yeah. And, and as we all know, you know, China isn't cooperating with the United States. <laughs> They're not in the best of <laughs> terms right now. Yeah. So you've got that, you're take, kind of taking advantage of that political rivalry. And they were, they were making money off of this. Um, they were, they were basically using illicit drug revenue to invest in a, um, you know, trans-Pacific trade business. And so didn't get into specifics as far as what they were trafficking or, you know, what they were purchasing and, 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 and exporting, but, you know, they were vague about it, you know, electronics and, and uh, durable goods and uh, things like that. But, you know, this, this, you know, that this involved probably companies and, and brand names that we've all heard of. And, you know, you think about the, the risk reputation of those companies, if it came out that they were, their products were, were used to, to move millions of dollars in drug money. Mm. Well, let's talk a bit about new technology and how that's benefited criminals, because that's, that's been a huge game changer in many respects, hasn't it? So I, I hesitate to say that it's been a big game changer. It is definitely offering new opportunities to criminal groups. Mm. Um, mm. Okay. And, yeah. and, and I would say that, uh, so yeah, so first of the big, the big, the three, I think, ways that technology has, has helped um, criminals conduct money laundering is, first of all, you have the rise in person-to-person money transfer platforms. Uh, it's like Google Pay, Venmo, things like that, where it's just, it, you can, you can kind of make these, um, you can, you can pay people directly through, uh, electronic means. You have cryptocurrencies, um, and I think, you know, Bitcoin has been in the news a lot recently with the two big ransomware attacks um, in the United States against Colonial Pipeline and then the um, Brazilian meatpacking company. Uh, so that's, you know, that's that's a way that criminal groups can can bring in revenue is, is, is through cryptocurrencies. And then encrypted communications, um, we will talk about this later, but uh, basically is, is a way to, for for criminal groups to coordinate and and organize money laundering. Uh, it makes, makes, the, makes the whole process just more efficient um, with encrypted communications. So so yeah, these, I, I think it's important to note that, that you know, cash is still um, predominantly the, the, um, the medium for criminal activity. Mm-hmm. Cash is, is absolutely uh, still essential. But these other technologies, these other platforms, I, the way I see it is that they 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 provide more opportunities in the layering stage of of money laundering. That if you you know let's say you, you um, you've got your your you know illegally obtained U.S. dollars, and 
if you move it into uh, you know great british pounds and then you know euro and then into cryptocurrency like bitcoin or ethereum that's just one more step of of the process that makes it harder to track um, and the person to person money transfer platforms make it easier to smurf you know to basically break up large amount into smaller amounts um, and then and then of course encrypted communications basically just help criminals organize all this it, it helps for them to be able to get together to to lay out plans for money laundering and then and then execute increasingly complicated money laundering schemes yeah yeah because communication especially internationally is going to be king isn't it yeah and knowing who to trust who you're dealing with where to meet you know the, the specific terms of, of how much money you're talking about how will it be delivered where will it be delivered you know all all these details um you know obviously if you're if you're just putting it out there in the open you run the risk of being intercepted so having encrypted communications allows them to do this all basically under the the cover of secrecy yeah i mean i suppose one random question um prior to those sort of encrypted communications what kind of tactics were gangs using to communicate with one another especially on an international level if you want to go way back i mean phones basically um i I think the the pager and the payphone probably dominated maybe in the 80s and 90s um and you know that of course could be intercepted as well and if if you Mm. if you establish patterns and were able to to intercept phone message uh, phone conversations um but I think the new generation of encrypted communications and whether that's um, you know, like WhatsApp or Telegram or even iMessage or some other more, more advanced uh, services that we'll talk about later. Um, first of all, they allow to have kind of open channels of communication. You can, you can kind of talk back and forth in real time. You can have multiple people in on, on a conversation. So it's not just one-on-one. It can be, you know, however many people you want, up to 100 people mm-hmm. or whatever. And, and a lot of these services advertise themselves as encrypted, secure, private. There are plenty of examples that suggest they aren't actually that that secure. But, you know, when, when you're talking about a lot of these are free services, it, it's the convenience and the they're cheap and the efficiencies they create. It's his... his attracted a lot of of criminal actors on the subject of encrypted communications information has just come through about a huge fbi sting operation that's recently wrapped up called operation trojan shield can you talk to us about that operation and all the things that you know yes so operation trojan shield is a is great insight into this world of encrypted communications that we were talking Mm. about and Mm. actually before i jump into the details on trojan shield i think just to bring everyone up to speed, um, you know, I, I think most people are probably familiar with with kind of mainstream encrypted chat platforms like WhatsApp, iMessage, Telegram, Signal. Um, I know I use WhatsApp and iMessage multiple times a day to keep in touch with people, and these are all encrypted. You know, the idea is that they're they're private to an extent. I, I think yeah. if, if there there like I said, there are examples of um, you know if, if obvious criminal activity is being is happening on WhatsApp, police can. Go to Facebook and which owns WhatsApp and say, "Hey, we need to see the the records on this account," and they can get them. There's a deeper world of encrypted messaging services that that come at a much higher cost and and offer much higher levels of security. Yeah. And these are, are um, basically encrypted uh, messaging services that are they they 
the technology behind them isn't necessarily all that different from from a WhatsApp or an iMessage, but they are coming on a on their own separate device. Usually, it's a you know they'll take like a, a Samsung handset, strip it down, um, remove the camera, remove the microphone, take out the GPS, any 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 kind of extra features that could um, unnecessarily compromise the the phone. Take all that stuff out. It, the, the phone will have one purpose, and that purpose is to host this encrypted chat channel where the individual can use it to talk to other people on that same service. So this is, yeah, obviously several orders of magnitude um, more more complicated and secure than, than, a, than a platform like WhatsApp. So you've had companies that have come and gone that have operated in this field. Um, some of them market to business executives and celebrities, um, basically saying like, you know, you need secure communications, this is it. But um, criminal actors have have also found them very useful, and in some cases have been the primary uh, the primary buyers. And to be clear, these are these are very expensive services. We're talking, you know, maybe several thousand dollars for the phone, and then maybe a thousand dollars a month for the service. Oh, so wow. wow, okay, yeah. I think first of all, it costs a lot of money to operate your own encrypted mm. chat platform. You have to have the servers and the networks all set up. Um, I think also there's probably to a degree just keeping it exclusive. You know, one feature of these these services that they're relatively small. Um, you know, if you look at like a WhatsApp or, or a Telegram, you're talking about hundreds of millions, if not billions, of users. That's not what these uh, encrypted chat providers want. They they want to keep mm-hmm. things pretty small and exclusive, so that they don't attract the attention of of law enforcement and basically kind of stay discreet, stay under the radar. But they're still able to make a lot of money. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're, they're yeah. um, based on on the cost of the service. Um, and over the past five years, we've seen several of these companies uh, shut down. So I think the first one that really uh, made made waves was Phantom Secure um, back in 2018. That was a Canadian-based company. Um, and then uh, EncroChat, which was run out of France, uh, shut down in 2020. Earlier this year, Sky Global uh, was was shut down. And all of these basically use the same um, the same model, you know, the stripped down phone with, with a single yeah. app on it. Yeah. So that's what brings us to Trojan Shield. Um, and Trojan Shield actually starts, it's, it's a fascinating story. It starts with the arrest of Phantom Secure CEO, Vincent Ramos, back in 2018. Uh, so, uh, yeah, basically the FBI, uh, they, they suspect that Phantom Secure is, is selling phones to, to criminals, uh, basically facilitating criminal activities. They arrest the, the owner of the company, Vincent Ramos. The, com- the, the service is shut down. A few months later, the FBI finds one of the, basically one of the, the lead guys behind the technology, and they, they, they catch him in San Diego. He's in the process of basically building the replacement to Phantom Secure. He's building a, a, a new app um, and designing it to, to go on handsets called Anom, A-N-O-M, I think short for anonymous. Um, and he, uh, but yeah, basically is in the process of developing this and setting up his own company. The FBI goes to talk to him. They obviously have some leverage. Uh, they, they flip him and he becomes a confidential human source when now he's working for the FBI confidentially. So they, uh, they tell him, listen, go ahead with this, go ahead with Anom, but uh, we want you to insert uh, some code 
into the phone where you know everything is secure, everything is locked down, except every message that that one of your criminal clients you sends on this phone, we want it to send a copy to to a server that we control. So, starting in 2019, they start rolling these these phones out. Essentially, it's a it's a huge honey trap. You know, each one of these phones is marketed as a highly secure, highly private line of communication. It's actually just a <laughs> it's a direct uh, direct line uh, to the FBI. But um, you know, the confidential human source he he's not only tech savvy; he knows how to build these phones. He also has a, a, a pretty robust network of clients, so he's able to you know seed these phones out over the course of two years. He gets eleven thousand users around the world. Um, who are who are using this this phone, and the FBI and other law enforcement agencies around the world ultimately collect twenty million messages sent to the network. Yeah, pretty much exclusively criminals, um, and and so we're looking at um, the number keeps going up, but I think last I checked it was about a thousand arrests um, linked to intelligence uh, gained from from uh, from Operation Trojan Shield seizure of. Tens of tons of of, um, of drugs. Uh, I think the Australian police claimed that they were able to, or actually, one of the reasons the Australian police said they wanted they shut they ended up shutting down the operation because they were starting to intercept messages of of you know planned um, physical attacks and murders, and mm-hmm. so they basically mm-hmm. shut it down. They they stopped those. So I mean, a, a hugely successful police operation that was made possible by this uh, this encrypted chat feature you know so so basically this this gold this this holy grail of encrypted communication criminals have been increasingly relying on over the past few years law enforcement was able to to basically intercept that uh and and you know get a direct line to these criminal organizations and monitor them directly for several years uh so i think it's a great example of the technology's double-edged sword that Yes, um, you know, it helps these criminal groups facilitate all sorts of criminal activities, but it also presents huge vulnerabilities and, and ways for law enforcement to, to creatively, um, you know, insert themselves and, and monitor and, and ultimately make arrests and, and, uh, and shut down these operations. Encrypted communications is such an interesting kind of topic because um, when uh, the Snowden revelations came out, was it 2013, there was a big push suddenly for ordinary people. They wanted to suddenly encrypt everything. And then on top of that, you had technology companies who started to get a bit nervous about their their image um, of cooperating with the law enforcement. And it led to, I think it was Apple refusing to help the FBI unlock a phone of a potential terrorist and all Mm -hmm. sorts of crazy things. So yeah, you're right. It really is a sort of double-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah, no, you just laid out the timeline beautifully. That, yeah, I think this really, you know, you look at 2013. Obviously, encrypted communications were around before then, but yeah, mm. the, the the Snowden revelations really kind of brought into light that yeah, the 2015 debate. It was the San Bernardino attack. Mm. Um, mm. The FBI it, yeah. was pressuring Apple to to unlock um, one of the attackers' phones, and you know, there's a very public debate. Um, over basically the the value of doing that versus maintaining privacy. Ultimately, the government won in, in that case, and they compelled Apple to to help open up the phone. But it, yeah, I agree. It's it's a it's a fascinating debate, and I think coming down to, 
I think on a macro level, mm. um, I, I generally think that encrypted communications is, is good because when it comes down to it, the vast majority of messages that are going back and forth are for legitimate legal mm. means. And if you think yeah. about our last conversation where we were talking about uh, industrial espionage, yeah. this is exactly the kind of thing you need in order to mitigate or, or, or prevent industrial espionage from happening. So encrypted communications, I think, in the grand scheme of things, serve our, you know, ultimately there are more, are more good than harm. But then obviously, yeah, you do have, it doesn't, um, it makes investigations harder. And, and, you know, when you think about uh, making an investigation more expedient, yes, it, it would be nice to, for them just to be able to, to get into a phone and, and, and see those messages or, or, or pictures or whatever immediately. And that's, that's, that's a, that's a, you know, trade-off investigative expediency versus kind of a larger, more mm. secure environment. Um, mm. So yeah, I, I, I think I'd come down more on the side of, of, you know, I think more, more privacy is probably ultimately better for security, but then obviously you're going to have your, your examples or that's the exception. Of course. Well, I mean, you know, if law enforcement have um, go through proper warrant procedures and there's a healthy relationship between sort of private technology firms and law enforcement in the end it probably shouldn't present a major problem for law enforcement really but i yeah I, and they do i mean mm. companies like facebook and and apple and twitter i mean they have very yeah strong relationships with with law enforcement agencies mm. assuming everything goes through the proper channels there's you know there's there the requests are put in it follows a process i think the issue that was at play in this 2015 case is that it, the the immediacy of it. The basically the FBI mm. was saying, "Listen, we got this guy's phone. We need to get into it in case there's another attack in the works, and we need to get into it now." And then I think it took two or three months for the process to work itself yeah. out. And so yeah. the FBI is saying, "You know, well, if something had happened during that time, you know, that that would have been a missed opportunity." Well, yeah, and potentially blood on the hands of the technology company. Yes. Yeah, because yeah. from what I saw from the outside, Apple's defense effectively was they were just trying to appeal to people, um, to their market, so to speak, to say that look, we're we're not just giving away your data, and they didn't want to expose a vulnerability in their coding. I think on the phone, I think they were trying to claim that they couldn't unlock it. I think is what they were trying to say, weren't they? And I think yeah, Apple's defense it was very interesting mm. because they made it so public right that it wasn't just a private conversation they were having with the fbi they they went out of their way to really make this very public to make this kind of a to showcase their commitment to privacy probably informed by the by the snowden revelations just two years prior right yeah i think so yeah so yeah and and i'll, I'll you know betray my own biases here but I, I think one of the issues I have with it is that you look at right now, for example, the U.S. Well, past few years, the U.S., U.K., Australia have have all been basically, to some extent, putting regulations and restrictions on the use of Huawei and other Chinese technology mm. equipment mm. because they say these companies are, are basically in bed with the Chinese government and they allow the Chinese government access to critical infrastructure into our networks, allow them to spy on us. Yes, I, I, I also have that concern. <laughs> At the same time, or you know, just a few years prior to that, the FBI was basically asking Apple to give them a backdoor so that they could investigate cases. And I, I see those two as very 
similar. <laughs> Those mm. are basically, it's the U.S. accusing China of doing what the U.S. wants to do. And obviously, you know, it's it's global politics, like double standards abound. Mm. But mm. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I think, uh, you know, it's hard just to say to pick a side because, you know, it's it's a lot of gray. But mm. I, I think I, I tend to say I'd rather just have you know, encryption and privacy across the board because because ultimately I think I think the world's a more secure place if you have protected communications. And yes, there will be criminal organizations that will operate, they'll take advantage of that. There will be terrorist attacks that take advantage of that. But ultimately I think those those pose a much smaller risk than, you know, basically providing international or, or, or international networks for for espionage or basically compromising entire networks to, to mm -hmm. government um, surveillance yeah yeah just back on financial crime can you talk to us a bit about the the threat financial crime poses to legitimate business operations because that's a that's a problem isn't it so yeah as, as i mentioned before trade-based money laundering i think is probably one of the biggest um threats because that's where you have that overlap between mm. uh, between criminal organizations and no money laundering and legitimate companies. I think, you know, if you, if you look at anti-money laundering operations, uh, whether it's the U.S. or U.K., I all of them, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've looked at the cases, all of them target banks or financial institutions. So it's always the, the basically the, the governments are putting the onus on banks and financial institutions to monitor to know their clients to monitor the the transactions that are going on within their banks and to to flag suspicious activity and report it so that you know authorities can investigate it and, and make sure that it's um you know prosecute if it's criminal banks and, and and banks are responding to this by increasingly by by putting in more security measures by um i think cracking down on on money laundering operations and i think this has pushed criminals out to diversify and used more tactics. You know, if you look at, you know, maybe 10 or 11 years ago, you, you had several huge cases with Standard Charter Bank, uh, with Wells Fargo, where they were mm -hmm. caught, you know, helping Mexican drug cartels launder tens of, or hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, they were punished for that. They, 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 they paid fines for that and, and took hits to their, to their, um, to their reputations as well. So I think, yeah, banks are, are, getting the message and they are avoiding suspicious business if, if they think that it, if it rings in this risk of being labeled as, as supporters of money laundering. So I think as a result, that pushes criminals again to diversify. And I think one where one place they could diversify is into non-financial institutions. Uh, and this is where, you know, you get into, um, when you, uh, unfortunately, yeah, there's aren't any examples right now of that happening when it comes to money laundering. But there are plenty of examples of that happening when it comes to trafficking drugs. So basically the first, you know, moving drugs from one country to another, you know, it, it's when you look at examples of, of trafficking drugs from Mexico to the United States, for example, very commonly uh, they will um, pack drugs into shipments of fruit or produce. Um, they prefer produce because of the kind of they they it's it's expedited you know this idea that we need to get produce through the border quickly because it'll expire and so there's this idea that it can it can go through quicker sometimes it's it's known to the company maybe sometimes the company actually knows what they're doing and they're actually helping to to smuggle drugs into the using their trucks and their produce 
a lot of times they don't know and, and someone is intercepting the truck and planting it in the truck or maybe an employee is, 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 is working against the company. Either way, this obviously creates a big risk for any company. Yeah, yeah. There was one ex- interesting example that came out of Operation Trojan Shield where um, they listed a few, they gave some, some excerpts from some of the chats that they intercepted. And one of them, um, I think it was, it was someone in the United States talking to someone in Australia and they were using, uh, they were basically disguising a shipment from Lowe's, which is a, a, a big American hardware kind of home furnishing store. They were uh, basically, they, they were using Lowe's as a, as a cover. I think they were saying there were a bench or something was packed inside this box and it was actually, well, I think it was methamphetamine or cocaine. Um, and so they were, they were using the cover of these legitimate companies to, to ship drugs. And, you know, this happened, like I said, this happens on a spectrum of, you know, sometimes it's, it's the company has no idea and no involvement whatsoever. And, and, you know, the criminal actors are just using it as a cover. Um, in which case, you know, I think the company has an interest in at least, um, stopping that to preserve their, their reputation. But then it, I think it gets, uh, it, they're also, you know, you, you could have where the company, is more involved where you might have an employee within the company who's, who's using, uh, he's using access to the company and, and, um, to, to ship, to ship drugs or illicit, mm. um, mm. illicit you know, contraband or to use their financial system as a way to, to launder money. Um, and that's something we haven't necessarily seen yet. Uh, but I, I, I have a feeling, um, you know, that's that's something we're going to see in the future. Is is basically um, regulators going after non financial companies um, for facilitating money laundering? Operation Trojan Horse. One of the communications that I saw in the Vice article, it was um, it seemed to be a drug group based in Bogota who were using, I think it was French diplomatic yeah. uh, envelopes or something. I was, yeah. I was wondering, does that mean somebody at the French embassy was working for them or that that one? They really stood out to me too, mm. because um, I, I think it's always kind of been understood that diplomatic pouches are used to for legal illegal operations. Um, but usually it's associated with, uh, countries like Iran, um, maybe, uh, West African countries, uh, countries that, that, that tend to be more associated with criminal activity. So it was, it was kind of surprising to see, um, France using, using the French diplomatic pouch to answer your question. Yeah. I, I, I think it, it, certainly means that someone within the embassy or within the diplomatic mission was uh, was working with drug traffickers. Um, I, I can't imagine uh, drug traffickers would, would, would have that kind of access without some sort of inside help. So it would be interesting to see what comes out of that um, as far as, as who, um, you know, how that, how that worked, who was, uh, who was behind that. But no, I agree. That one stood out to me as well. Mm, no, very interesting, that one. So keep an eye on uh, the French mission in uh, Colombia or <laughs> something will come up at some point. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and you know, I, I, you know, I, I think about, um, you know, diplomatic security and security in embassies. It's not always as, I, I think as robust as, as maybe we'd, we'd like to think it is. And, um, I'll, I'll give just another quick personal anecdote. Mm. Um, I lived in uh, Ho Chi Minh City 
several years ago. And we actually lived, we lived in an apartment building that was, we overlooked the U.S. consulate and the French consulate. And, you know, you look at the U.S. consulate, it was, and there was, a, of course, that ubiquitous wall with, with you know, tall fence coming off the top of it. Every square inch of the place was was lit, you know, flood lighting everywhere. Just, it, it's a, it was a very, you could tell it was a very security conscious uh, building. Right next door to it, you had the French consulate, which was actually a, a pretty historical building. It dated back to the um, colonial days. It was, I think it was a 19th century building. Total darkness. Um, you know, you, no idea. You look over there and you had no idea what was going on at night because there were no lights. Um, I, I, we heard stories about uh, them finding like snakes in the in the consulate and yeah, I mean not to not to not to badmouth the French. I'm sure plenty of other missions are guilty of this, but mm, it's mm. yeah, you don't always have the most robust security <laughs> within within some of these these missions. So yeah, I, I I was I raised my eyebrows, but then as I, I thought about it, and I thought, okay, yeah, no, that's that's. I'm sure there were a few security lapses there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, I suppose with an organized criminal gang, I mean, if somebody could steal the envelopes and get the and then put the shipment out of the country via somebody dodgy at airport security, all you need is somebody dodgy at airport security at the other end, don't need to get it through. But Yeah, and I mean I don't know how France mm. does it, but usually that's gonna that's gonna involve yeah, uh, someone um Someone within the French mission is, is going to have to hand that off at the airport, maybe mm-hmm. even accompany it, you know, on the plane. Um, I, I suppose it's possible. It's, it's it's possible that someone could have slipped it in, but you know that that in itself is a, is a huge security lapse. If you have outsiders who have access to your diplomatic pouch and you 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 don't know, you know, it's hard to say which one is is more concerning. But um, yeah. either way, <laughs> either way, there's some definitely some some problems going on there. Yeah, definitely. Well, well, thank you for all that. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up today? So, so yeah, today we, we talked about um, a series of articles I, I wrote last month mm. on on money laundering, and it it, it I think it, it segued and dovetailed nicely with another series of articles I'm writing on crime and technology, and um, I'll be publishing those over the coming weeks. So, so please um, watch out for those. And yeah, I'll be talking about. Uh, some of the points I made today. So looking at, at crime and um, and communications. So so how they how they communicate and the vulnerabilities there, as well as um, uh, marketplaces. How criminal groups are, are using technology to to create new marketplaces. Um, you know these these dark web um, tour websites where you can basically you know buy drugs or um, lots of other illegal things. And then finally talking about. Um, uh, crime and um, financial mechanisms. So, a lot, mm-hmm. cryptocurrency, for example, how how criminals are using uh, financial technology to, uh, mm-hmm. to pay each other and receive revenue mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So, stay tuned for for those. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for that. Well, look, Ben, thank you so much for rejoining me today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Yeah, they can go to worldview.stratfor.com. Uh, my work and the work of my colleagues is, is all published there. And yeah, uh, we please please go visit it and, and, and check us out. Fantastic. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.